Well, Father, we come before you uh, just grateful that we can sit under the teaching of Jesus. We thank you for the written word of God, the revelation that was imparted um, to the authors, and that we have a chance to hear directly from you. And as uh, we do, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will enlighten our mind, convict us where we need to be convicted, encourage where we need encouragement. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, the title of my message is The Test of a Litmus Test. And some of you are wondering, what's a litmus test? Well, if you're a chemist, a litmus test determines whether or not something is acidic or alkaline. If you are a pool owner, the litmus test determines what kind of chemicals you need to add to balance the pH level of the pool. And if you are a political wonk, you know that a litmus test is often a question given to a prospective candidate, usually Supreme Court judges, to determine their jurisprudence, right? If you are somebody who likes C-SPAN, you might hear questions like, would you uphold Roe versus Wade? Do you support gay marriage? Will you protect religious freedom? Do you believe in the Second Amendment? And the latest one... What is a woman? And depending on how a prospective Supreme Court justice answers these questions, it says a lot about how they see the broader world. It's a, it's a way of vetting a candidate. Now, during the time of Jesus, you had a lot of people who claimed to be the Messiah. But clearly, not everyone could be the Messiah, claimed to be the Messiah. And there were a number of them that shown themselves not to be the Messiah. And so there was an understandable vetting process where they would ask litmus test questions. Should we pay taxes to to Caesar? Right? If a woman is widowed and then gets remarried and is widowed again and then gets remarried, and this happens seven times in a row, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Right? Litmus test questions. What kind of Messiah are you? And one of the greatest questions, the most important questions that somebody would ask the Messiah, at least in the mind of your typical Jew at the time, especially if you're in leadership, was, does this man faithfully keep the Messiah? Or does the Messiah faithfully keep the Sabbath command? And we see an emphasis of this in Luke chapter 13, starting verse 10. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman... A daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, 
be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Now, in this passage, Jesus is subjected to the litmus test, and he is found wanting. Keeping the Sabbath was extraordinarily uh, important to your typical Jew. It's, uh, it was commanded in the Ten Commandments, specifically the Fourth Commandment, that says in Exodus 29 through 10, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. This was part of the covenant God made with Israel. You will be my people. One of the stipulations is you never work on the Sabbath. Now, this raises a lot of questions, right? The Sabbath day was known. That was obvious. It was Saturday. Really began Friday evening at sunset and concluded Saturday evening at sunset. So that day was defined. What was undefined is work. What constitutes work? And there's reams of rabbinical writing where people speculated what is and is not work. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath command? Now, I have uh, some friends who are Sabbatarians. They believe that this command is still active today. And they would agonize over what was and was not work on the Sabbath, specifically when it came to the wife who was a homemaker. And homemakers make the home, and one of the duties that they have, part of the work is cooking. And so they would question whether or not it was sin to cook on the Sabbath. And they came up with this solution. We'll get a crock pot, fill it with all the ingredients, and then on the Sabbath day, we will turn the knob. And that is not work. It's a thing. What is work on the Sabbath? And clearly Jesus violated their understanding of what is work. They appraised him based off of these Sabbath commands and this Sabbath commentary. And he failed the litmus test. And there's a lesson here. When you appraise somebody, you got to ask the right questions, right? If you appraise somebody with the wrong questions, you're always going to get the wrong answer. And appraising and, and vetting is something that we do. For instance, in a, in a dating relationship, I remember talking to a woman who knew that not everyone who says they're a Christian are a Christian, so she had their, her own test. On her first date, she'd give somebody a Bible and say, find Ezekiel. Like that was the test. I'm like, okay, uh, a Jew can find Ezekiel. You know that, right? Or when you look at people appraising a church, right? When I talk to people, I, I often ask, you know, are, what do you look for in a church? And they say, I want something for the kids. I want something that fits my schedule. Uh, I want something that, my, uh, that will give me a sense of community. I really need 
uh, to feel the presence of the Spirit. I want solid Bible teaching. Right? There's different answers, right? Different tests that we give to appraise whether or not we want to be a part of a, of a certain community. Like, if you were to move right now, you're forced into it, what would be some questions you would ask to determine whether or not I should go to this church or this church, right? Having a litmus test, asking those questions, it, it's not wrong. What is wrong is when you start asking the wrong questions. The wrong questions lead to the wrong answers, which lead to the wrong conclusions. And in this case, it caused people to miss the Messiah right in front of them. So what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through this text here. We're going to see the litmus test, the flawed appraisal of the test, and the true appraisal of the test, and, and then take some time to reflect on what are the kind of questions you need to be asking when you appraise churches or dating prospects or whatever situation the Lord might place you in. So let's start with the first, the litmus test. Verse 10. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So you have Jesus in a synagogue. This is a common uh, scene in Luke. If you were to have like the drama of Luke, one of the set pieces you'd have to put together is a synagogue because Jesus often finds himself there. And the first time we find Jesus in a synagogue is in chapter 4, where he goes to his hometown synagogue. He stands up, he grabs a scroll, do you remember this? And in 4, 18 through 19, and if you're studying Luke, I'm more and more convinced that this is probably the most important passage in Luke. Because the rest of Luke is a commentary on what he's about to read. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And remember what he said? Today this text is being fulfilled. And then what does he go on to do? He liberates those who are oppressed from the curse. He liberates people who are possessed by demons. He liberates people who are afflicted by blindness and, and other diseases. He is proving that he is the Messiah, right? Jesus actually uh, presents himself to be vetted, doesn't he? The Messiah will fulfill this. I'm going to fulfill this. Watch me fulfill this. But then he encounters some resistance in Luke chapter 6. Remember how his disciples were picking heads of grain on the Sabbath and like the Pharisee hall monitors catch them doing that and say, you know that's working. You're harvesting. And then right after that, Jesus finds himself in another synagogue. This time, he sees a man with a withered, gnarled hand. And what does he do? He heals the hand, letting everyone know that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So you kind of have contrary test here, right? Contrary litmus test. On one hand, you have this prophecy from Isaiah that Jesus goes to over and over and over again. But then you have this national fixation on Sabbath keeping and what that means, which is often informed by all of these rabbinical commentaries. And Jesus almost puts them in conflict 
Which test are you going to choose? And so now in chapter 13, Jesus finds himself in another synagogue on another Sabbath day where he will do another healing. They call this a mirror miracle. And it's very telling that Jesus just told the parable of the fig tree. Do you remember the fig tree? There's an owner of a vineyard, has this giant fig tree, he's taking up all the nutrients, and he says, we need to cut it down. But the vine dresser says, hold on. Let's give it one more year, cultivate it a little bit, and then see if it bears fruit. If not, we'll cut it down. And when we decoded it, right, the, the fig tree is what? Is Israel. The owner of the vineyard would be God. And then this is the easy one. The vine dresser is Jesus. There you go. And so let's just wait a little bit longer, Father. Let me cultivate it and see what happens. And so he does a mere miracle. It's almost as if he's, he's checking the fruit. I'm going to do the same thing. Are they still going to reject me over this stupid understanding of the Sabbath? Or will they finally see that the Messiah has come to set the prisoners free? So that's the setup. So we find Jesus in a synagogue, and in verse 11, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. All right, the one who came to set the captives free sees a woman who has been imprisoned by a disabling spirit. Now, by disabling spirit, this is not to suggest that she was demon-possessed. Remember Job? Satan said after the first series of tragedies when he took away the, his, his children and his wealth and his servants. The second one is, is Satan says, well, skin for skin, the reason why he's not cursing you is because he's still healthy. And God says, go ahead and take away his health. And so Satan afflicts him, Right? Was Job possessed? No, he was afflicted by Satan. So this is a woman who is in bondage to Satan. He is afflicting her with kind of a hunched back. Some, some scholars speculate that this is something called Bechterev disease. It's an arthritis that leaves somebody hunched over. She could not stand straight up when she walked. She slouched when she sat. If you've had back pain, Think about your back pain without anti-inflammatories, without steroids, without any painkillers. And that's what this woman was enduring. In addition to this, when you are hunched over, you are obviously sick. And remember when Jesus talks about the judgmentalism of the day? That when bad things happen, the implication in the minds of many was bad things happen to bad people. And so they would look at this woman who was afflicted by Satan, and wonder, I wonder what she did to deserve this. This was a sorry fate. But she is in the synagogue. She's listening to the teaching of Jesus. She doesn't say anything to Jesus. She does not approach Jesus. But Jesus notices her. He approaches her. And when Jesus saw her, verse 12, he called her over. And said to her, woman, and that's a very gentle title, by the way, okay? Woman, you are 
freed from your disability. Remember, the Messiah came to set the captives free. He uses the word freed. You see the parallels? And then he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. For 18 years, she was isolated. For 18 years, she was in pain. For 18 years, she received judgmental stares from everybody. For 18 years, people withheld compassion on her because she did something to deserve this disabling spirit. What would you do if you were healed on the Sabbath after 18 years? Well, she did what I'd hope you would do. She glorified God. This was not some magic trick. This was the Messiah using the power promised to him to lift the curse on this woman, to set a prisoner of Satan free. That seems to be pretty compelling testimony that Jesus is the Messiah. If you're gauging Jesus through the litmus test of that passage in Isaiah, you'd come to the right conclusion that this truly is the Messiah. But not everyone sees it this way. You see, a flawed appraisal of the test where the proof of Jesus being the Messiah becomes proof that he's not. Why? The timing. Verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Now, was Jesus working? Telling a woman, be healed, laying hands on someone? And yet, the conviction of this man, of this ruler of the synagogue, is that Jesus did work. Why? Because of reams of rabbinical commentary. You see, keeping the Sabbath was a badge of righteousness. And it's easy to see how it could become that because it is an external act, right? Who's working and who's not working can be perceived with the eye. And if you are not working, you have visible proof that you are a good Jew and you are a good person. It can feed your self-righteousness. And you know what else it does? It allows self-righteous people to police other people. And self-righteous people love to be hall monitors, right? They love to point out infractions. They love to be more righteous than other people because that's a reward, isn't it? Doesn't self-righteousness feel pretty good? We love hearing about the sins of others so that we can feel better about ourselves. People who honored the Sabbath were even celebrated. During the time of Maccabees, this was kind of the stormy history between the uh, end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew when they were under different Greek rulers at the time. Some of these faithful Jews would not defend themselves during a pagan onslaught, and many of them died as martyrs because they would not fight on the Sabbath. 
In AD 62, a Roman general by the name of Pompey, he didn't ultimately destroy Jerusalem, but he conquered it by, elect- by erecting siege works and invading on the Sabbath where nobody resisted him, right? They were so committed to the Sabbath command, to keeping it, that they wouldn't even fight to defend their lives, and they were viewed as heroes. So in the mind of this ruler, this ruler of the synagogue, the guy who kind of oversaw everyone, and he was probably speaking for the other elders as well. In the mind of this ruler, Jesus cannot be considered the Messiah Because he did what no good Jew would do. He worked on the Sabbath. And he makes it very clear. Jesus, and then he speaks to the whole crowds in front of Jesus, right? He's trying to, you know, sequester their support. There are six other days when he could have healed this woman. She's been crippled for 18 years. It's not like she's going to die today. Just wait one more day and then come and heal. You have desecrated the Sabbath. This ruler is implicating Jesus and telling everyone, this is not your Messiah. And Jesus pushes back, and you see the true appraisal of the test. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Now look at verse 15. How does Luke label Jesus? He calls him Lord. He calls him Lord. Previously, when he did a Sabbath healing, Jesus declares that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And the Son of Man has different meanings to it, but one of the chief meanings is from the prophecy of Daniel, where in Daniel chapter 7, 13, the prophet has this vision where it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So there is this glorious figure in the clouds, right, where the Son of Man, this glorious figure, is going to come back and reign on the earth. I remember how Jesus talks about how the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect. When you see this term, son of man, he's not necessarily talking about his humanity. He's talking about how he fits into this prophecy, this vision of the future of a glorious being who's going to come back and judge the world. This is the Lord. And so as these people are judging Jesus, Luke reminds the readers who's really the judge. It's the Lord. And if you are standing before the Lord when he's about to judge you, there are many things that you would like him to say. Well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome, my child. But one thing you don't want to hear from him is hypocrites. You hypocrites. He's turning it around, isn't he? 
you have missed the entire point of what I just did. Does not each one of you untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? He judges the critics as a bunch of hypocrites because each of these critics would have a donkey or an oxen and and he would be tied, this donkey or oxen would be tied to a manger and you can't just eat straw. They would unloose the knot and lead it to a water source that's under 300 feet away because that was the prescribed limit of Sabbath travel and allow the oxen or the donkey to drink. They had no problem caring for their animals because like many of us, right, if you're attached to an animal, you want to take care of your puppy or your dog or your cat. Uh, If you uh, are in agriculture, you know that there is worth to the cattle because they are valuable to you. They had no problem making sure that their animals were taken care of. But then Jesus says, and and bear in mind, Jesus is pro-taking care of animals, by the way. What he brings out is that they have more concern for this animal than this woman. And ought you not, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Now, there's a, a threefold argument, okay? First argument, the woman is of greater value than the animal. She's not only a woman made in the image of God. She is a daughter of Abraham. She is part of your spiritual family. You may have an attachment to your donkey or your ox, but but what kind of attachment does God have towards this woman who is a daughter of his covenant people, a daughter of Abraham? One who has been in bondage to Satan. Ruler of the synagogue, if this was your daughter... Would you want her to wait another day for healing? Why would you think God would want that? Two, for Jesus, the bond of Satan, loosening, loosing the bond of Satan, takes about as much work as loosening a knot on an animal, on the rope that binds an animal, right? Loosening a knot is not that hard for you. Clearly, it's not work because you don't count it as Sabbath work. Loosening satanic hold on this woman is not hard for Jesus. It's not work. Three, the Sabbath day is a perfect day to do this kind of miracle. Like, have you ever thought about the significance of the Sabbath day? Like, for many people... It almost seems like an arbitrary day where we're not allowed to work or have fun. I was reading a biography of a relatively famous uh, Christian, and he was agonizing over whether or not to allow his children to play tennis on the Sabbath. Right? It was restrictive. But the purpose of the Sabbath is it goes back to creation. Remember how God spent six days creating, and what was his assessment After every day, it was good. It was good. And then he rested on the seventh day because everything was good. The Sabbath was a recognition that things are complete. This is the way it should be. But naturally, 
Because of the fall, sin entered and tore apart all that was good. Everything is corrupted. And so what the Sabbath did was it was a reflection of what was lost. It was to create a longing for the way things should be. There's almost a nostalgic element of it, right? Oh, to go back to the Sabbath day, to the good old days before sin corrupted this planet. Another purpose of the Sabbath was was there was a, 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 a therapeutic element to it, right? If you sprain your ankle, what is, the, what is the prescription? You need to rest. You need to rest. Rest was the means of healing. So not only do you remember the good old days, there's a therapeutic element of rest. The Sabbath was a gift to cause you to to long for the new Eden, for the restoration of all things, and to rest and to be healed. In the Sabbath, there'll be no more. In the future Sabbath, in the future rest, you won't have women with Bechterev disease. In fact, healing on the Sabbath makes sense because that's the very point. It's a time of healing and to long for restoration. And Jesus brings the Sabbath into the present. And yet, they could not see it. But the crowds could. Verse 17. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Jesus showed himself to be the Messiah, not by keeping man-made rules, but by fulfilling Luke 4, 18 through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. They were wrong to reject him, and the reason why they rejected him is they used the wrong litmus test, right? When he asked the wrong questions, you're going to get the wrong answers. And with the wrong answers, you're going to get the wrong assessment. Is Jesus who he says he is? Well, the answers are found where? It's found in Scripture. And ultimately, the test of a litmus test is, is Scripture. Does it point you to Scripture? Now, we live in a day and age where you do have a, um, a division in Christendom, right? Where there is the domain of darkness and the kingdom of light, the realm of Satan and the kingdom of God. They have people who are enemies of the cross, then you have people who are brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the king, right? There is a divided world between those who belong to God and those who don't, and that line often runs right through Christendom. Last fall, I was invited to uh, hear a friend lecture at a civic club, and the civic club met at a church. And so being the new guy, I had some people who were kind of interested in getting to know me, and they asked, what do I do? And I mentioned I'm a pastor. And then this man asked a follow-up question, 
what kind of church do you pastor? I'm like, what do you mean? Is it inclusive? Right? Isn't that a litmus test? No, we're not inclusive, by the way. We are very bigoted and judgmental, but you're welcome to come. (laughs) You'd fit right in. There's things you want to say, and I didn't say at that time, right? But, but isn't that true? Like, everyone assesses everybody, and there is a place, right? I mean, if you had to move, what kind of questions would you ask? If, if you were going to date somebody, what would be some questions you want to have resolved? Well, I'm going to give you three questions that are good litmus tests um, for churches, but you can expand the application into whatever context you are you're needing. The first question to ask is, does the church believe in the biblical gospel? Does the church believe in the biblical gospel? And I get this question from scripture. You know, there is a belief that if you call yourself a Christian and kind of believe in Jesus Christ, that is enough. But Paul makes it very clear that what you believe confessionally, what you say you believe matters a great deal to God. In Galatians, you see a church that is under siege at issue was a group of Jews who believe that it is not enough to believe in the gospel. You're not saved by grace through faith alone. Gentiles had to get circumcised as well. And this is what Paul says in Galatians 1, 6 through 8. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed." Now, did he get this? If somebody teaches a different gospel, let's say they say that um, you're saved by grace through faith plus sacraments, or faith plus baptism, or faith plus circumcision. Paul doesn't have an agree-to-disagree mindset here, right? He says, the person who teaches that, let him be accursed. He may be winsome, He may seem godly, but if he gets the content of the gospel wrong, he is on the side of Satan. Isn't that interesting? Well, isn't that kind of heresy hunting? Policing language? And it is true that sometimes people overdo that. But there are certain doctrines, okay, that you cannot deny and be a Christian. And there are certain doctrines that you have to affirm to be a Christian. For instance... You have to believe in the reality of sin to be a Christian. You have to believe in the reality of the atonement, that Christ died on the cross for our sins. You have to believe in the reality of the resurrection, right? That's like a no-brainer. You have to believe in the, the need to repent or have faith to receive the forgiveness of sins. You have to believe in this concept of judgment, which is linked into the atonement. There are things that you can't deny, right? If somebody denies the deity of Christ or denies the Trinity... That is a violation, right? What you believe matters. If somebody comes up to me and says, I don't believe in the resurrection, I can say, 
you're not a Christian. That's not being judgmental. That's just reality, right? What you believe matters. Paul makes it very clear. Does a church believe in the biblical gospel? Secondly, does a church live out the biblical gospel? You have churches that could say they believe in the biblical gospel, but it has little bearing on how they live their life. And this is where the book of James is a great complement to the book of Galatians, right? They both work together. And in James chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, the Lord's half-brother says this, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So what are the marks of true religion? Number one, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, do they have self-control over their tongue? Right, a bridle, the metal object that kind of steers the horse's head, right? One little thing can steer this enormous animal. In the same way, somebody who has been changed by God is given the fruit of the Spirit, which would include self-control. And do you know what's in somebody's heart? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Transformation will change the language people use. It'll be used to, to edify, to express love, forgiveness, encouragement, not bitterness and backbiting, right? A person's speech and how people speak is evident of a spiritual transformation. It won't be all talk. Well, it is talk, the type of talk that edifies. Secondly, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is. And I just want to stop with pure and undefiled. He's about to define holiness here. Holiness was very important to the Jewish audience. And we often think about holiness as far as what you don't do what you stay away from. But notice his definition of holiness is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to care for the vulnerable, to love those who can't love you back. And how do you love an orphan? There, there, little fella. Hope somebody adopts you. How do you love a widow? Oh, I sure feel bad for you. You love them with action, with sacrifice. And it may not be widows and orphans, but it could be others who are in deep distress. We have people who are, are handicapped, people who are struggling with life. I think one of the true tests of a fellowship is when you walk into this church, do you feel like you're rushing a sorority or fraternity where people are assessing you, standing back, seeing what you can add to them? Or are they people who are open-handed and generous and they will love you just because you're there? Sure, your children are out of control. Sure, your life is a mess. But will the church try to love you through this? Do they love widows and orphans? And then finally, to keep oneself unstained by the world. We're called to love the world by trying to reach the world but not in a way that makes us become like the world. Holiness does matter. Sexual purity, language, entertainment choices. 
not being in love with the present world, not taking their values as your own, being governed by things above, not on things on earth. Obedience matters. I mean, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Obedience does not save us. But those who are saved by grace through faith alone will not have a faith that is alone because they understand that they've been transformed by the power of the gospel, and that's actually good news. I don't want to sin. I want to be free from this. Then thirdly, does the church stand firm on biblical sexuality? Does the church stand firm on biblical sexuality? Why is this a big issue? Well, in the United Methodist Church, they've underwent this huge rift that was a separation over this issue. And, and, and this shows the degree to which this question should be taken seriously. Now, is this because some churches hate gays and some don't? It's not that easy. You see, this is really an issue of biblical authority. Does the Bible have the authority to define sin? Because to become a Christian, right, you not only have to believe these things, but part of becoming a Christian is you repent, which means you turn away from sin, and you turn towards righteousness. So what is the sin you need to turn away from? If I tell somebody that you need to turn away from adultery, and they say, well, that's not a sin, then they'll never turn away from it, right? When you deny the Bible's authority to define sin, you deny the doctrine of repentance. And when you deny the doctrine of repentance, you deny the gospel. That's what's at stake. Does this mean that we don't love our LGBT neighbors? No, we do love them by telling them that there is hope if you change in this life. And if you reject, and this is why this is a litmus test, if you reject this, area, what else are you going to reject? Why are they rejecting it? This is a case where a church that capitulates on this is being stained by the world. So those are things to look for. Now, what about things not to look for? Don't use secondary issues as a test of fidelity. For instance, if you are into deep, systematic theology and you are engaged in the blogosphere and you're trying to reconcile inter-Trinitarian relationships where you think about, is, it, is the doctrine of eternal sonship true or is the doctrine of eternal functional subordination true? If you don't know about that, then you've just passed the test. You're not a theological nerd. Congratulations. Is that a test of whether or not somebody is orthodox and in the faith? When you start to say, if somebody gets a wrong view on that, you're basically going beyond the headlights of Scripture, right? And you're using speculations to question the legitimacy of somebody else's conversion. And do you know what? When you do that, that's actually an accusation. That's an accusation of the brethren. And who is the accuser of the brethren? Satan. You need to be careful not to falsely accuse people because when you falsely accuse Christians, you are doing the work of Satan. And we know that's forbidden. Some of these other issues, don't know. Another way you can go beyond Scripture is to dogmatize the application. 
where you begin to say, this passage mandates that you do this. You keep the Sabbath this way. And I'll give you an example, okay? And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say it. Will you vote for Trump? Ooh, Pastor Dave. Will you? Where in the Bible does it say that you have to vote for Trump? A case can be made, I think, either way. This is not, will you vote for Biden? Will you sit out this election or be on Team Trump? Some Christians will judge those who vote for Trump. You're voting for a felon, potential felon. You're voting for a guy who's morally compromised. How can you be a Christian and do that? Other people will say, you coward. Don't you know what they want to do to us? Don't you know that we're not voting for a pastor but a president? Don't you know that his view most closely aligns with the biblical worldview? How could you not? And then what happens? We start accusing each other based off of what? You can't, you can make an argument either way. The implications of Scripture can take you either way. But we do know that slandering and judging Christians is wrong, right? There is freedom to disagree. The problem with dogmatizing conclusions is there's only one way you can act. There's only one way you can apply these truths. And that can tear a church apart. And it's a terrible litmus test of a Christian, right? There is a place for vetting. There is a place for assessing. But to do it the right way, you have to ask the right questions, right? Do they believe in the biblical gospel? Do they live out the biblical gospel? And then, yeah, I threw in the whole gay marriage thing because that is the issue of the moment. But ultimately, any vetting test that we have has to come directly from Scripture, can be pointed to Scripture. And if the vetting leads you away from Scripture to these ideas and these philosophers and these church fathers and not the Scripture, you're kind of missing the whole point. Those things can be helpful, but the standard of Christianity is found in the Scripture. And the problem with that ruler in the synagogue is he was looking more to the commentary on Scripture than the Scripture himself. If he would have looked at the Scripture, he would have seen that Jesus is the Messiah. Test your litmus test. Put it under the scrutiny of Scripture. And Scripture will never lead you astray. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you just grateful for the teaching of Jesus. Thank you that he has equipped us to look at this world through the eyes of Scripture, that we have this revelation that informs us, challenges us, and changes us. And I pray that we will use the Scripture to think biblically and assess biblically and be governed by the Scriptures. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.